Folks, um, thanks for coming along tonight for our discussion on Australia after the 2023 referendum. Um, there are a lot of people here tonight, so everyone's got to be brief with their comments. Our speakers will speak for about 15 minutes each, and that includes people on Zoom. Everyone's got to be pretty short and to the point. So I will introduce our speakers in a way that's short and to the point. Both of them are making very welcome returns to the Sydney Institute. They've both been here quite a few times before, and we're very grateful to Paul and Anne for coming along tonight. It's a busy time of the year for them, and we're very grateful. So we're going to start off with Anne Toomey, who's Professor... I would say emeritus, but others would say emerita. There you go. Um, but the, the latter would have graduated in Latin uh, at the University of Sydney, and she's an author, of course, most recently The Vow of Sceptre, uh, where she spoke here, but also a member of the uh, Australian expert group for the Voice Referendum, which was an official group. And, of course, Paul Kelly, a well-known author and editor-at-large at The Australian. So we start off with Anne, and then we go to Paul, and then we go to questions. And thank you. Thank you very much, Jared, and thank you for the invitation. Well, it's a truth universally acknowledged that the Australian people are very wary about changing the constitution. They won't do so if there is any kind of organised opposition and um, any group that's able to see doubt and so fear. Hence, bipartisanship uh, is, our, at a minimum, a necessary condition, um, but often not sufficient in a referendum. And that's why the voice referendum itself was originally designed for a conservative government to put to a referendum. It was not Albanese's amendment, quite the opposite. Back in 2012, the expert panel established by Prime Minister Gillard had proposed putting an anti-racial discrimination provision into the constitution so that Indigenous people could go to court to strike down laws that they thought were discriminatory. Now, that approach of rights, courts, judicial enforcement and striking down legislation appealed to the progressive left in Australia, but not to conservatives who described it as a one-line bill of rights. Now, the voice proposal was developed as an alternative uh, to the rights approach. It was based on two foundational principles. First, that there be no shift of power from parliament and the government to the courts and judges. And second, that there be no legal impediment on parliament or the government to make such laws and policies as they wished. So the voice was developed as a mechanism to seek to influence the parliament and the government before laws and policies um, regarding Indigenous Australians were made, uh, with there being no legal obligation on parliament or the government to consult or even consider that advice and no litigation to enforce rights. It was to operate in the realms of politics and influence rather than courts and laws. Now the plan was to gain Indigenous support for it, which was in fact done through the dialogues that were run by the Referendum Council, and to have a coalition government put it to a referendum. Labor, which at that stage uh, thought the voice proposal was far too weak and preferred the rights and courts approach, would have then been wedged and forced to support it. So the coalition would have been able to control the wording of the amendment, and any subsequent legislation setting up the voice, 
uh, to avoid any legal or technical concerns they might have. They could also have shaped the voice as they chose and set up any protocols concerning if or when consultation was or was not appropriate. As a bipartisan referendum aimed at achieving reconciliation, it would have been hugely successful along the lines of the 1967 referendum, allowing the coalition then to seize the middle ground politically and probably preventing it from losing a lot of those seats to the Teals and others. So that was the original plan when The Voice was developed. Um, as you know, it's a plan that failed, uh, and it failed when the Turnbull government refused to support it, not because of any particular problem with the proposal. Um, the claimed third um, House of Parliament objection was eventually recognised by everyone as for the nonsense that it was, but because of internal party leadership um, disputes and tensions between Turnbull and Abbott. Now, Turnbull just didn't have the political capital to be able safely to provoke the right wing of his party with this issue. And this was when the voice referendum actually really failed. So it wasn't 2023 when it went down, it actually failed when it was not put to a referendum by a coalition government. Now, some on the Indigenous side, such as Noel Pearson, did make um, great efforts to gain the necessary support um, on the Conservative side to achieve this plan, but others were unwilling to engage with the coalition, um, preferring to leave it to um, a referendum for Labor to put to the people. Uh, this, in my view, was foolish um, and indicative of one of the huge problems uh, that beset the voice referendum, which was that the core group of its proponents were so convinced of their own righteousness and inevitable success that they would not recognise reality or compromise when needed. Other key failures included the announcement by Anthony Albanese on his election victory, in his election victory speech, that he would put the voice to a referendum, which instantly turned it into a party political issue, and of course, the failure to compromise on the wording. So dragged down with this doomed referendum, then were prospects for other constitutional reforms. Now, while many have argued that a simple form of recognition in the constitution of Indigenous people without the voice would have succeeded, it's actually quite hard to see how. Because the same attitudes to constitutional reform and the same arguments run in the voice referendum would most likely defeat another referendum on constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. Now, one of the really interesting things about the voice referendum was the incredibly detailed polling that was undertaken in relation to it and the reasons for why people voted the way that they did. Um, so, for example, the Resolve polling um, political monitor on the voice referendum um, poll from October 2023 is extraordinarily detailed and useful for anyone who wants to have a look. Uh, but for this particular talk, I'm going to focus on the, the Demos AU polling series, which examined, among other things, attitudes of people to constitutional reform generally. Now, it found that around 30% of people believe that the constitution works well and should not be altered at all. Uh, it also found that another 30% take the view that the Constitution does need altering to reflect our modern nation. So we've got 30% at one end of the spectrum, 30% at the other. So what's in the middle? Well, it found 
that about 20% of people say that they just don't know enough about the Australian Constitution to have a view. So these are the ones that are particularly influenced by the don't know, vote no mantra. And then the other 20% consider that the Constitution should only be altered when it can be shown that it doesn't work. Um, now this is the group that's vulnerable to the if it ain't broke, don't fix it um, slogan, which you might remember from the Republic referendum. Now, while they might, this, while this group might be prepared to fix a technical problem or a provision that's causing an actual practical um, disadvantage or problem in the system, they're not prepared to support general improvements to the constitution, uh, including reforms that have some kind of a social or symbolic aspect, such as a republic or indigenous constitutional recognition. So if you add together those 30% completely opposed to reform with those who say they don't want constitutional reform unless it actually fixes a specific problem. And then you add half of those who say they don't know enough to be able to um, vote one way or another, then that gives you 60% of people opposed to constitutional change before you even start looking at the merits of the relevant proposal. And so this is one of the reasons, among many, there are many others, uh, why it is so hard for um, a yes vote to win at a referendum. Because it has to win over not only those who don't know and don't care, but also those who err in favour of no change at all, unless you can prove there is a tangible problem that needs fixing, as opposed to general improvement, and you can prove that that proposal will will actually fix it to a very high level of certainty. Now, in the voice referendum, Demos AU found that the only fixed problems cohort and the don't know cohort sided with the no vote in very large margins, um, condemning the voice referendum to a heavy defeat. Uh, it concluded that, and this is a quote, the perceived risks of constitutional, of a constitutional amendment was the decisive factor in the 2023 voice referendum. Now, on this basis, it also reached the conclusion that a referendum solely on symbolic recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the constitution would also fail. And this was particularly so if it lacked bipartisan support. But Demosayu also noted that even bipartisan support is not enough to guarantee success. So that's part one of the problems. That then brings us to the arguments, which is the other issue here. Um, so the arguments that were made against Indigenous constitutional recognition at the voice referendum would probably also be made in relation to any other kind of recognition. So the first argument, um, if you did one on um, Indigenous um, recognition generally, would be that it's only symbolic and it wouldn't achieve useful change, that it wouldn't improve the lives or the circumstances of Indigenous Australians. So the voice referendum was actually designed to counter that by actually having a substantive um, measure included in it. But even then, doubts were raised about how effective it would be in achieving this change. And this was actually used as one of the reasons against the voice. So according to the Resolve poll from October 2023, 59% of those polled thought that the voice would not be likely to close the gap 
between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Now, this argument about failure to achieve useful change would actually be even more powerful in relation to a constitutional recognition amendment which only involved symbolic change. Um, so it would attract those who believe that the constitution should only be changed to fix specific problems that have a substantial effect and need correction. The second argument uh, would be that symbolic change would actually be used by the High Court of Australia to um, affect the interpretation of other constitutional provisions or the validity of legislation. And this raises a problem about how symbolic um, recognition would be affected in the Constitution. Would it be inserted in a new preamble to the Constitution? And if so, how might that preamble be used in future in constitutional interpretation, taking into account how preambles have been used in constitutional interpretation in other jurisdictions, such as Canada? Now, conservatives have long criticised the use of a preamble for symbolism due to its dangerous legal effects. In fact, it was that concern which actually prompted the voice referendum proposal. Um, so Julian Lisa, in a 2017 speech, said, it is clearly dangerous uh, and any attempt to use the preamble to insert symbolic material to insert symbolic material should be resisted by anyone who rejoices in the name constitutional conservative. Um, the scare campaign that um, uh, was run in relation to how the High Court would interpret the voice referendum uh, would pale into insignificance um, in comparison to the scare campaign that would be run if you were sticking something in a preamble to the Constitution. If the High Court is too untrustworthy, in 2023, to interpret the voice amendment, it's unlikely that it would be accorded greater trust in the near future in relation to the interpretation of a constitutional preamble. Um, the third argument, which proved very effective in the voice um, referendum, was that we are all Australians and no group on the basis of race should be accorded any special treatment or even mentioned in the constitution. Now, for a constitutional lawyer, one of the most mysterious arguments that was made at the voice referendum was that race was removed from the constitution by the 1967 referendum. Now, to me, that was completely bonkers because A, race is still in the constitution, um, specifically in sections 25 and 51-26, the race power, and the 1967 referendum had the effect of actually extending the race power so that it allowed Parliament to make special laws for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, which did treat them differently. Now, when I actually dug around to try and work out, well, well, why are these people making these statements? What is it that they're actually trying to argue? I finally realised that what they were arguing was that the 1967 referendum by removing all references to Aboriginal people from the Constitution, took race out of the Constitution, um, or somehow removed racial segregation from the Constitution simply because no racial group was mentioned in the Constitution. Now, apparently, at least according to this argument, this made us all equal. 
Um, now, if that's what people really believe is the measure of equality, then Indigenous constitutional recognition is unlikely to succeed in a referendum. Now, to be really clear, I do not give credence to that equality argument. I think it's a crude and unthinking view that equality means treating everyone exactly the same, regardless of their circumstances and differences that are relevant. Uh, but it was this view that obtained a lot of traction in the 2023 voice referendum, making it extremely difficult now to reverse that popular belief if one wanted to run a referendum today in relation to Indigenous constitutional recognition. Okay, so to conclude, what can we do now? Well, reform on Indigenous matters will have to proceed through parliaments and governments, um, not through constitutional change at the federal level, and in particular, I think, through the states, which frankly have a far bigger impact on the lives of Indigenous people than the Commonwealth does anyway. So really the states are the area where action should happen. Um, but looking at constitutional reform more broadly, we should aim to build a society where constitutional reform is potentially achievable in the future. So to this end, I think three things would be useful. First, compulsory and better teaching of civics and citizenship in schools so that we can actually build a population which A, is confident in its knowledge of how government works and how the constitution works, B, is effectively inoculated by that knowledge against all the misinformation that circulates on social media, and C, feels capable of making informed and deliberative assessments of constitutional reform proposals. Second, I think maybe some form of regular assessment of constitutional reform, such as a regular constitutional convention or a commission or something, so that ideas for reform, including those that are drawn from the public, can be publicly scrutinised and analysed and assessed, and we can start making constitutional reform a normal part of our political discourse rather than some strange and intimidating thing. And finally, trying to develop some kind of mechanism to obtain bipartisan political support for constitutional reforms where all sides seek to um, act cooperatively for the benefit of the nation rather than for their own short-term political benefit. Um, this may be far too much to ask, but of course nothing is ever achieved without trying. Thank you. Many thanks to Prof Professor Toomey. Paul Kelly. Uh, thanks very much, Gerard. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be back at the Sydney Institute, and I want to salute again Anne and Gerard Henderson for their leadership of the Institute, and I also want to acknowledge my co-presenter, Professor Anne Toomey, and the great contribution she's made to the study and debate about law in Australia. The voice referendum was an extraordinary event. I've never seen anything like it. I see it mainly now in two ways, as a national tragedy and as a national escape. As a long-time supporter of Indigenous recognition in the Constitution, it's a tragedy because that goal is finished for years, probably decades. People might say I'm too pessimistic about that, 
I doubt it. Any new referendum will require an agreement between Labor the Coalition and a wide spectrum of Indigenous leadership. That will be daunting. It's a tragedy because I believe, and polls verify, that a majority of Australians support, in principle, the idea of recognition. Labor won't put another referendum without coalition support, and immediately after the referendum's defeat, Liberal leader Peter Dutton ditched his earlier support for a new recognition referendum, saying the public is over the referendum idea for some time. That's an understatement. I think we'll be waiting for a new generation. A profound obstacle lies in the lack of agreement among Aboriginal leaders. The momentum for the voice came from the 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart, when many Indigenous leaders came together and endorsed proposals devised earlier. Yet the referendum was defeated by a no campaign led by two Indigenous figures, Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine. We seem to forget a reality which I quickly realised many years ago in the early 1970s when covering Aboriginal affairs. Indigenous politics has always been characterised by rivalry, personality disputes, political and personality differences. It will require an extraordinary effort in the future to achieve sufficient Indigenous agreement to get up a referendum. One legacy from the defeat of The Voice this year is surely that Aboriginal leadership is going to be more fragmented and divided than ever. Senator Price has emerged as an influential national figure. Her significance far transcends her opposition to The Voice. As she made clear in her National Press Club address in the campaign, Price challenges the established norms of Indigenous policy. She opposes much of the existing Indigenous power structure. She wants a winding back of separate and special Indigenous policies. Price is a mixture, a revisionist, a radical and a conservative. She highlights the fact that Indigenous MPs are both Indigenous politicians and party politicians. Their differences are being institutionalised in party politics and Indigenous politics. There is no universal Aboriginal political position, though in the prelude to the voice campaign, many people, particularly pro-voice journalists, seem to assume that there was. Welcome to the obvious new reality of pluralism among senior Indigenous figures and MPs. There will be no going back. After the referendum, the Albanese government is uncertain what position to take on treaty at the Commonwealth level. Price and Peter Dutton oppose a treaty. Price has signalled she is prepared to make this an election issue if Albanese stands by his earlier pledge of full support for the Uluru Statement. The divisions are far-reaching and will extend into the future. The referendum result is a tragedy because of the misjudgment made by a small group of Indigenous leaders who initially pushed the voice campaign. 
In the end, they played the big stakes. Their gamble was all or nothing. They calculated that with public goodwill and sympathy for constitutional recognition, that would permit the creation in perpetuity of an indigenous voice in the constitution. That was high ambition. I believe it represented an extremely optimistic view of the prospects for winning coalition support or a significant degree of coalition support. Tying recognition to the voice was always going to lead to the risk that both would be lost. This is exactly what happened. There is no recognition and no voice. The scale of defeat, 61-39%, and lost in all six states, points to political misjudgment and constitutional overreach. The proposal, in my view, was flawed from the start. Individual leadership misjudged it in gambling with their all-or-nothing approach. But the referendum is a tragedy for another reason, the misjudgment of the Prime Minister. Anthony Albanese pledged the referendum on the night of his election victory amid the mood of euphoria. That was unwise. What became more unwise was the persistent comment of the Prime Minister that the referendum was an invitation by Indigenous peoples to the Australian people. That is, from one group of Australians to another. To me, this was a very divisive formula. The Prime Minister's attitude was that to put the model uh, essentially being endorsed by the Indigenous leaders. It was his obligation to put the model. It was as though the Prime Minister felt he had no agency. I don't think any previous Prime Minister has justified a referendum in these terms. I note when Paul Keating was Prime Minister, he didn't accept the initial position of Aboriginal leaders on native title. Keating negotiated them down. Indeed, Noel Pearson said later that Keating taught the Aboriginal leaders the need to negotiate. In my mind, it's not the job of the Australian Prime Minister to act as the messenger boy for one section of the Australian community, no matter how important that section is in terms of putting the constitutional change it wants. Albanese seemed to be a willing hostage he wasn't able to insist upon significant changes to the referendum proposal. Perhaps he felt they weren't needed. But the impression left was that the Indigenous leaders were calling the shots. And this was related to the central tragedy, the abject failure to secure Labor coalition bipartisanship. The Prime Minister did not establish any process to achieve this objective. A constitutional convention would have put Peter Dutton under a degree of pressure to negotiate. The fact that this didn't happen is deeply revealing. I think Albanese was responsible for a major misjudgment. I think he felt Australia had changed as a nation, witnessed the same-sex marriage plebiscite, his May 2022 election victory, and notably the historically weakened position of the Liberal Party having lost seats to the Teals. It is apparent that working towards bipartisanship was seen as too hard or perhaps unnecessary. It is also true that if Albanese was bound by the attitude of the Indigenous leaders, then the concessions needed to get bipartisanship would not be forthcoming anyway. The result is we have a structure likely to doom any such referendum for a long time in the future. 
Labor has put 25 referendums since Federation for 24 defeats. How could this historical record not have driven caution, prudence and the imperative for bipartisanship? Yet the mood was far different. Frank Brennan said later, the government's novel approach of going it alone with a hand-picked group of Aboriginal advisers was never going to work. It was always going to end in disaster. Labor's approach of the voice referendum first, followed by a subsequent Republic referendum in later terms, is now in tatters. It's more than 20 years since the 1999 Republican referendum was defeated. I suggest the legacy of the voice's defeat is that we will wait at least another 20 years for yet another referendum on the Republic. There is a further lesson from the result. We need to rethink our approach to constitutional change. We need to think of more modest proposals that are less exciting and capable of winning bipartisanship. We do need to see some referendums actually getting up. One obvious conclusion is that the voice should have been legislated first. My second view is that the referendum result was an escape, an escape from what I saw as a flawed and dangerous constitutional alteration. This was often put as a conservative amendment, but it seemed to me it was more a radical amendment. I agree very much with Anne that the decision taken by the Turnbull Cabinet in 2017 was very important. But this decision needs to be understood. The coalition parties at that time never felt any political ownership of a constitutional voice. The reasons for the cabinet rejection were clear, but were frequently ignored by pro-voice journalists. They were spelled out in 2017 by Turnbull and his Attorney General George Brandis. Notably, that the Indigenous voice as a constitutionally enshrined additional representative assembly was inconsistent with the fundamental principle of equal civil rights in Australian democracy. I note Turnbull pointed out the cabinet decision, which involved ministers who were both conservative and moderates, was unanimous. Presumably, there was no opposition to it. Turnbull and Brandis said at the time, the voice proposal was neither desirable nor capable of being carried at a referendum. When we look at the actual proposal that was put, it seems to me the argument is very much that this was an example of a proposal far too radical for the Australian people to accept. that involved a new chapter in the Australian constitution. Indeed, it was very clear that the voice was seen as an important part of the Constitution. Former Chief Justice Robert French said the voice would be a significant institution in our representative democracy. The voice was a group rights political body based on ancestry with a sweeping ambit of representational powers to Parliament and the executive government. Justified by the need to accord First Nations people this power, the proposal inevitably had to raise issues of equality and race. The late David Jackson, one of our leading constitutional barristers, said, it means, and I quote, we become a nation where 
Whenever we or our ancestors first came to this country, we are not all equal. Many critics believe the idea of equal citizenship in the Constitution was being compromised. For most Australians, the voice was seen as a, as a racially defined institution. I note in one of their submissions, Robert French and Geoffrey Lindell said, the voice is not about race, but about our first peoples as the indigenous people of Australia. I understand that argument and the distinction, but the point surely is that the voice was both. It was both about the first peoples and it was about race. How could it not be? The scope of the voice is its strength, said Professor Megan Davis, one of its champions. She famously made the point that the parliament and the government wouldn't be able to shut the voice up. Under the constitutional amendment, the voice would be able to make representations on a wide range of issues. The government kept telling us what the voice would focus on, but it was in no position to offer such guidance or assurance. The voice, if established, would be its own master. The government, having proposed this power, seemed embarrassed at its own proposal and kept trying to play down, deny or deceive the public about the scope of the voice's representational power. The voice obviously went to the issue of political power. Give the Indigenous leadership credit for what they were seeking. This wasn't about being polite. This wasn't a courtesy, the absurd constructions of the Prime Minister, although on one occasion he did say it would be a brave government that ignored the voice. The voice would be a political institution. It would have a moral mandate, a media profile. Its members would function as political operatives. It would become involved with the parliament and executive government in advising, negotiation and deal-making. Just imagine the coverage the ABC would give The Voice when it challenged the government or parliament. The Voice would be a new and unpredictable institution in our system of governance. Its credibility and legitimacy would depend upon its behaviour, but its performance would inevitably reflect on the issues of equality, race and ancestry at its heart. In voting The Voice down, it is likely the Australian public had a mixture of concerns. They weren't convinced this was a good idea, they didn't know enough about it, and their instinct was to feel it would be divisive. The voice proposal should not have been put in this form that fundamentally divided the country. In my view, the concerns of the public were justified. I think we escaped a radical and unjustified experiment. Thank you. back to you, you both made a point about the 2017 um, meeting uh, well, well the discussions in the Turnbull cabinet um, now Malcolm Turnbull says in his uh, memoir <coughs> that when the meeting was originally held with the indigenous leaders um, he was present and Bill Shorten was present and Turnbull says that both he and Shorten said there that the proposal would never work now Shorten then changed his position because of moves within the Labor Party. But right from the start, it appears that 
the leadership of the Labour Party at that time had real doubts about it. And then something happened. So how do you view that? Well, let's start with you, Anne, and then we'll go to Paul. Paul, you might go a bit further. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, okay, so back to the um, coalition. Uh, I think it depends very much on how you understand what the voice was and how it was supposed to work. And you can probably tell that both Paul and I have quite a different view about that. Um, uh, I was there when the original version was created. I was at the table in the room. And, you know, frankly, it wasn't intended to be some kind of radical thing and creating, you know, different levels of equality in Australia and different levels of citizenship. I mean, for me, that argument's just completely bonkers. Um, there's an awful lot of bodies that try and influence government and individuals as well. Yeah, just for a moment, think to yourself of, you know, who, do the, who are the people in the country who have real influence? The rich people. You make donations to government, you can get governments to do what they want. They would still have far more influence than The Voice or any of these other kinds of groups, you know? Do we have hysterics about the Productivity Commission? You know, do we demand to know before an election who's going to be the new leader of the Productivity Commission, etc.? Uh, the, the answer is no. A lot of this was whipped up hysteria. Um, but there was whipped up hysteria and that did make the um, Australian people were concerned. All this body was intended to do was give an opportunity and a mechanism, just as there had been mechanisms before, to allow Aboriginal people to have their say. And the only reason for putting it in the constitution was that it was a form of recognition by actually hearing the voices of those people. Anyway. So it seems that back in 2017 it didn't succeed, but that's really when it was doomed. It was never going to succeed um, without that kind of bipartisan. So the Indigenous leaders at the time needed to do a lot more work to convince the coalition. Uh, they failed in doing that. And indeed, Conservatives themselves who had proposed and supported The Voice needed to do much more work. Um, with the coalition to convince them that this was actually something that was workable. But I just go back to the point that I made earlier on in the piece, and that was if the coalition had put this proposal themselves with bipartisan support, they would have controlled the whole, the, the terms of the amendment, the wording, the first set of legislation, how it would have worked. They could have controlled it and made it something that was actually useful to the country and consistent with their values. So I don't think we can just give it up on the basis of, oh, it was never workable. It would have been workable if they made it workable. They just chose not to. Thanks, thanks very much. Look, I think in many ways the keys to this whole debate was the extent to which the core of the Indigenous leaders, right back at the start, um, at the sort of meetings that Anne is talking about, came to convince themselves that this was a conservative idea. And I can remember having discussions with some of them, one in particular, and they made the point to me that this idea for The Voice was a conservative idea and therefore they were hopeful that the coalition would come on board and support it. I was frankly astonished at this argument. 
And my own view at the time was there was no prospect that the coalition would come on board for this idea. And I think we understood this from the decision of the Turnbull Cabinet in 2017 when, as I said, Malcolm Turnbull has said on the record, that decision was unanimous. But I wrote at the time about that decision that the Cabinet felt no ownership of the idea. The idea was largely a foreign idea to most of the ministers in the room that day and, I think, a largely foreign idea to the Prime Minister himself, Malcolm Turnbull. And so I think there was, there was a fundamental um, a decoupling here between the attitude of some of the Indigenous leaders that this was a conservative idea that the coalition may well take up and the actual view of the coalition. And when I say the actual view of the coalition, I'm talking about both moderates and conservatives in that cabinet. They simply saw this as a foreign idea and they weren't interested. And the statement from Turnbull and Brandis is a statement of principle. It's a statement of principle. They simply believed that this idea contradicted the principle of equal civil rights. They believed it had no chance of getting up in a referendum and they were opposed to it in principle. Now, over the years I had discussions about the proposal sometimes in private, sometimes in public, with all the former Prime Ministers, Tony Abbott, John Howard, Malcolm Turnbull, when he was Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, Peter Dutton. Not only did they oppose the proposal, they opposed the proposal vehemently. Some of them opposed the proposal fiercely, and they opposed the proposal on grounds of principle and practicality. And that was certainly the view of Malcolm Turnbull when he was Prime Minister, although he subsequently changed his mind. So I think this is part of the tragedy and misunderstanding about the entire proposal. Question here. Uh, initially to the Professor, if a spectrum of constitutional lawyers with varying degrees of eminence can't agree on... Yeah, it's on can't agree on the application and the interpretation of the voice, why do you think a better educated polity would make the slightest bit of difference and is, that, is there a degree of um, basket of deplorables in that sort of comment? Um, no, I don't think that at all. Um, I think that as a general principle we just do need um, a community that understands how the Constitution works. I don't think we have that at the moment, largely because we're not properly teaching civics and citizenship in schools. It's not even compulsory. Kids do not get taught in New South Wales in most schools about our system of government, and that leaves them vulnerable to misinformation, um, regardless of what you believe in relation to this particular amendment. As for um, whether or not there was some disagreement about um, the amendment itself, I think if you were looking for statistics, you'd probably find somewhere between 95% and 98% of lawyers and constitutional academics, etc., um, didn't have a problem with this particular amendment. There were a few odd ones, and there always will be. There will always be people who have a different opinion in relation to everything. Um, uh, but the vast majority, the Law Council, every law society and bar association in the country, um, uh, none of them had any concerns about it. 
Um, so the vast majority of constitutional lawyers were not concerned about it. I don't think we can ever expect 100% of any group to agree on anything. So that kind of expectation um, isn't um, uh, something that's plausible. Uh, but I do think education generally is a very good thing, that our Australian people should know how their system of government works. Now, that's not treating them as if they're stupid. That's saying that, no, we need to make sure that our children, uh, when they go through school, do get adequate teaching about our system of government and our constitution so that they can fulfil their responsibility of, as citizens in the future, both when they vote in elections and when they vote in referendums, because it is a really important and fundamental part of their role as Australian citizens. All I'd say is I agree with Anne completely about the need to um, revise school curriculum and put uh, in, in, with a much greater emphasis uh, on our system of government and uh, and our constitution. Uh, to what extent does the appointment of uh, Julian Lisa as the opposition's spokesman on The Voice and uh, 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 Shadow Attorney General indicate that the, the coalition, or Peter Dutton in particular, was willing to contemplate uh, the possibility of supporting, negotiating and supporting a referendum proposition because the risk was that he would resign when the uh, coalition uh, ultimately uh, did decide to oppose it? Um, well, just to state the obvious, um, Julian was one of the people who designed The Voice to begin with. So he was in the room on the day and when we're talking about it as having a conservative origin, he was part of that conservative origin. He was there, Damien Freeman was there, Greg Craven were there. None of these are sort of left-wing progressive crazies, okay? Uh, so um, the, the voice did have a conservative origin. It didn't have a Labor origin. It had a conservative origin. Uh, and you're right, the appointment of Julian Lisa um, as the Shadow Attorney General and Representative for Indigenous Affairs did send out at least a mixed message um, uh, that perhaps the um, coalition would support it. Now, things did not go that way um, for various political reasons. Paul can probably explain better than me. Uh, but it did send out some possibility that the coalition government was um, contemplating um, some kind of support for it if the government had moved towards some kind of cooperation, compromise, involvement, bringing them in, and I think there was a major failure in that regard. Well, just a couple of issues. I mean, as I said in my presentation, I don't think the Prime Minister was seriously interested in bipartisanship. And he would have known that if he was to get bipartisanship, there had to be very significant concessions. The Aboriginal leaders weren't prepared to countenance those significant concessions. I don't think the Prime Minister was either. So we were locked into this structure of a partisan division. Now, in relation to Julian Lisa, uh, I think that, and I'm not criticising uh, Julian here at all, uh, I think Julian was very principled the whole way through, but I, I, I do think there's a further element here, as Anne has indicated, about this idea of the voice being a conservative uh, proposal. And I think some people 
took heart when they saw that Julian Lisa was the shadow minister, uh, did have carriage, um, and particularly those people who were aware of his role at the originating um, uh, day of the voice. So that further encouraged the deluded notion, which I believe was always deluded, that this was an idea that was conservative in its own right and therefore had a chance of getting a degree of support or getting formal support from the coalition. I never believed that was a prospect. Yes, on race to Professor, uh, you seemed a bit bewildered as to why people would worry about it. But there were people confused, you know, who is an Aborigine? How, you know, how does this go on for hundreds of years? And uh, those same people would, uh, would say, well, can't we have a referendum to take the word race out of the constitution? How easy would that be to remove the word? Um, yes, we could, um, and I'd be up for it. I don't like the race power. I'd be more than happy to get rid of it. That was one of the proposals that was put at the constitutional by the constitutional expert group back in 2012. But when it came back to Indigenous people, when they did the dialogues pre-Uluru and they were asked, do you want to get rid of the race power and replace it with something else? Uh, they said um, no. That was sort of symbolism and they didn't care. They weren't prepared to, you know, use their um, uh, capital, their political capital to the extent they had any on that. So it was rejected at that point, but earlier on in there, um, from my point of view, I don't like the race power as well at all. Um, I would be extremely happy for it to go. Um, but um, anyway, given the <laughs> success of referendums in Australia, fairly unlikely, I think. Uh, thank you. you. In discussing almost any public policy issue in Australia and increasingly in the US, um, there t tends to be a tendency to view people on either sides of various debates as either wicked or evil or stupid and dumb. Um, and that happened obviously in this debate, but it also happened a few years ago on, on, on gay marriage when you must have been a bigot if you opposed marriage, other sorts of things. What, in addition to civics education, what sort of education um, might be needed to actually encourage a greater respect for diversity of views and have a better constructive debate about it in the next social or political issue? Well, education number one. Uh, look, some people say that a way of dealing with that might be having some kind of a constitutional convention, or there's a lot of people who deal in the area of deliberative democracy who look at things like what's happened in Ireland, uh, where you have um, citizen juries or um, you know uh, deliberative processes where citizens are brought in, given a lot of information, have access to experts, etc., and reach conclusions. Uh, that's one way that you can probably do things in a more respectful way, but. Um, I don't know about you, Paul, but I find the whole polarisation and just general nastiness in debate, um, generally, politically, that's in Australia is actually an influence that's coming here from both the United States in particular, but also the United Kingdom. It's, it's not just Australia, and I think it's very unfortunate. Well, I certainly deplore uh, this sort of language that you've just talked about. 
but it's coming into our community and it's coming into our political system through social media, through technology. And this is very difficult to address and to combat. I think one of the related problems in this particular case is the government of the day, the Prime Minister of the day, was putting an extremely contentious referendum where there was not bipartisanship on very sensitive issues relating to Indigenous Australians. So you had a situation set up which was guaranteed to be emotional and divisive. And my own view is that the referendum should never have been put in that particular form, given that that was the proposal and given the polarisation in the community and the role of social media, it's not surprising that we saw an outbreak of these sort of remarks. A related point, I think, is the responsibility on, <clears throat> on leaders, on members of parliament and members of community groups, a responsibility on leaders in terms of uh, safeguarding uh, the way they speak, uh, safeguarding their own language, and certainly among those people, there were a lot of reckless comments made. I've got a question here from Somewhat a reverend question directed to you, Paul. What conclusion can you draw from, from, from the broad, broader governance of Australia that the only majority of the voice was achieved in the ACT? <laughs> Dimitri, I th first. I think, that's, I think that's a Dorothy Dixer. <laughs> However, I do think this is actually relevant because if you look at the voting pattern in the ACT at federal elections, it's... Uh, particularly interesting, for example, at the 2013 election, I think I'm right in saying that um, when the country elected the coalition government under Tony Abbott with a pretty significant majority, uh, the ACT in two-party preferred terms resolutely voted Labor. And what we've seen in the case of The Voice is that um, the ACT was the only jurisdiction in terms of in terms of the voice, uh, that voted for the voice. So what you've clearly got is you've got uh, a community in the, in the ACT, which I think in broad terms is far more progressive than the rest of the country, uh, more pro-Labor, more pro-Green, and more sceptical or critical of the coalition. And you've got to bear in mind that a lot of those people, presumably, uh, form uh, the legions of the Commonwealth bureaucracy. So you can draw your own conclusions from that. Um, if I could just add something to that, uh, what I think is actually quite interesting about that is, and, and of course the ACT was also the only place that voted for the Republic as well, uh, but what's interesting is that if you assume that many of these voters were people who work in government, A, they tend to know more about how government works because they're part of it, but they were voting here for something that actually would um, uh, influence and, as many people have argued, constrain government. Okay, so they were actually saying, effectively, yeah, we know that government actually doesn't work well for Indigenous people. We know that we, the people in Canberra, when we make decisions that affect Indigenous people, are actually doing a crap job um, and that something needs to be done to improve it. So it's actually a really kind of interesting um, method of um, self-recognition 
that um, actually you as, as, as people in Canberra who are making the decisions that affect Indigenous people, you know you're not doing a good job and you actually rather want someone to come and tell you so. Uh, okay, so we get, we're going to be very quick. Stuart and Adam, okay? Uh, to Paul Kelly, the Prime Minister um, in the, on this issue performed so poorly, would you say that his Prime Ministership is finished? No, I certainly would not say that. Um, if we look at the history of referendums, um, Prime Ministers from time to time have faced very embarrassing and humiliating defeats at referendums. And uh, I think referendums are not a good pointer to what happens at subsequent general elections. So I think that's a really important point to make. And I think uh, people, people do make a mistake to the extent they think you can draw a direct line between one and the other. Having said that, I think that the referendum did indicate a degree of misjudgment on the part of the Prime Minister, which was very serious. And so the way I put it, after the referendum was defeated, I said, what the Prime Minister's got to do now is in a sense rehabilitate his leadership authority and show that in dealing with other issues such as the economy or security or energy or housing that he can re-establish his, his leadership authority and command and that if he can do that well and good but if he can't do that then the referendum will be seen to be more significant because it will be seen to be an indicator, an indicator of an ongoing leadership problem for the Prime Minister. So the real answer to your question is, the real answer to your question is whether the Prime Minister can demonstrate in dealing with other issues that the community see as more important than the voice, that he, that he has a greater sense of leadership judgment and authority on dealing with those issues than he displayed in dealing with the voice. Um, it was actually a, a bit related to, to that previous question, but I guess away from the substance of the actual voice proposal, how you both kind of rated, um, I guess, some of the commentary out there that uh, because of some of the issues around in the economy and cost of living, that in the broader public engagement and understanding was low and to the extent that it did exist, um, that the feeling was that it wasn't a the voice wasn't a priority given all of these other competing issues in people's daily lives, kitchen table issues. Um, how do you rate that as a, a driver of the outcome we saw? Okay, well, let's finish on that, as, uh, whether the voice was a priority in view of all the other issues. Uh, so. Well, look, the, the polling said it wasn't. Um, so if you look at the graphs, and there's a lot of them that various polls have done, um, Indigenous issues and voice was very low because it actually affects directly so few people in this country. It only affects a very small proportion, 3 4%. Um, so from that point of view, if you look at the, what the single most important issue was, it was keeping the cost of living down low. Um, now, it does raise an issue of whether a you know government can do more than one thing at at the same time, of course it can. So yes, the government should be able to run a referendum on The Voice while doing everything it can on, in relation to cost of living. But 
the perception of it is the problem and from the perception that the, the government was spending too much time and energy on the voice and that somehow magically that time and energy could somehow stop the cost of living impacts on people, which frankly it couldn't, but nonetheless that perception was enough to cause a lot of people to be angry and negative. Uh, I think it did have a big impact. Yeah, I agree very much with those uh, points. Clearly, the voice was not a priority. The poll showed it was a low priority. So there was a problem for the Prime Minister in as much as a lot of people thought he's got his priorities wrong. Uh, I'm concerned about all these other issues, cost of living, inflation, health, energy costs, and the Prime Minister's main concern seems to be the voice. So I think that was a problem for him, the question of misplaced priorities. The related problem was when he was talking about the voice, he singularly failed to persuade. And I think his actual presentation about the voice and what he said about the voice was extraordinarily ineffective. And that was indicated from the final result. I think that was actually damaging for him because I think that started to change public perceptions of the Prime Minister. People started to see a Prime Minister they felt wasn't persuasive, couldn't put forward effective arguments. And when they saw that over such a sustained period of time, because the voice went on for so long, then there was the uh, distinct uh, possibility or probability that they started to have further doubts about the capacity of the Prime Minister. Well, we could have gone all night because uh, we've got a lot, many more questions. I'm sorry, I just couldn't get to everyone. Um, I'd just like to say, uh, as you know, we had a lot of discussions about The Voice, heard different views before the 14th of October and tonight, after the 14th of October, we've heard different views and that's what we're all about. I'm very grateful both to Paul and to Anne for great presentations tonight and to the questions we've had in the comments. But it's uh, a lot of people here, it's a hot night. Well done and see you next time. Well done, Anne. Well done Paul.